Well, that was a clip from the 2013 film Don John. Whew, good morning. And this, this was a fascinating film. Now, I will say, I am not recommending this film to you. There's, uh, there's some heavy stuff to get through in it. The, the film itself, just the subject matter, is you, you see jo- uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character who is kind of a womanizer, sleeps around a lot. He's kind of known among his buddies as the guy who always lands the most attractive lady at the bar. At the same time, he's addicted to pornography. And so throughout the movie, you kind of see his movement from someone who views women as objects that exist to give him pleasure to actually having an intimate experience with someone that is about building an emotional bond. And so as you can imagine, that's some pretty heavy subject matter. There are some things there that aren't appropriate for children, those kind of things. So I'm not recommending it in that way. But it is a fascinating fascinating watch in seeing him move from this place of sex as something I do to get something for myself to sex as something that I offer to someone else as a part of a relationship, as part of intimacy. And what's also fascinating is to watch the relationship with the church throughout this. Each week he goes to confession. And even though his, his sins, his experiences change, his engagement with the church really doesn't. And you see this in this scene where there's just no, there's no nuance, there's no ability to kind of process through what is happening. It's simply, here's your prayers, you're absolved, go away. Well, we are beginning a series this week uh, that we're calling The Talk. In the next three weeks, we're going to talk about sex. And I know that's a weird thing to talk about at church, or at least for most people who have heard that we're talking about sex, the impression I get from them is that's a weird thing to be talking about at church. Um, And and I get it, and, and we don't traditionally talk about this very well. And so part of why we want to do this is because we feel like this is the kind of thing that we need to talk about together. It's the kind of topic that we need to be engaged with together as we're processing what it means to be people who are living in the way of Jesus. Now, just kind of to give you a heads up, I talked about this last week, but just if you weren't here, um, so we're all on the same page. Over the next three weeks, we'll be, we'll be touching different aspects. So this week, we're going to try and we're going to look at a lot of scripture and kind of see, like, what does scripture have to say about sex? Next week, we're actually going to have a couple of friends come in, someone from Safe Burks and someone from the uh, Children's Alliance at Opportunity House, who are going to come, and they're going to talk with us a little bit about um, abuse, assault, harassment, those kinds of things. And then our final week, we're going to look at what does redemption look like? None of us experience sex perfectly. We all experience it in really broken ways. Some of us in really extreme broken ways and some of us in just kind of the normal everyday junk that comes with being human and trying to figure out relationship and intimacy. And so we're going to try to talk a little bit about what does, what does redemption look like? What does moving forward look like for us? Uh, so that's kind of the three weeks. And, and we kind of tried to give like a rating just so you know because I know when we say we're talking about sex, uh, immediately those of us who are parents who know that our teenagers are going to be in the, uh, the audience, 
we, our initial thought is like, is that going to be okay? Like, what's going to happen? And so this week and the final week, week three, are pretty much PG, right? I mean, we're going to talk about some, some subject matter that is, you know, it's a little bit more weighty, but it is the kind of thing that is appropriate to be talking about with teenagers. The, the middle week, I still think it's really important for teenagers, but just so you know, as I said, it's going to be topics of abuse and, um, and assault and harassment, those kinds of things. So it's going to be weighty stuff. So to help you out, so that's going to be, I'm sorry, the rating on that one was like a PG-13 is what we're going to say. Um, so, but we think it's important. So to help you out, um, Dan Van Mater, our, uh, our Highway 712, our youth director, and I have worked together to put, to put together kind of a, a take-home for parents with teens where there's some questions on here. I think there's 12 questions. You don't have to feel pressured to like go over all of them, obviously. Um, maybe none of them are super helpful. But the point is, we hope that you have further conversation. We hope that the stuff we're talking about here actually equips or at least kind of propels you into some kind of conversation. I want to read you a, a, a brief stat I noticed in something I was reading this week from Sojourners magazine by a woman named Melissa Otterbein. She writes that according to a 2010 national campaign report, 8 in 10, that's 80%, of teens say that it would be much easier for teens to delay sexual activity and avoid teen pregnancy if they were able to have more open, honest conversations about these topics with their parents. Similarly, 6 in 10 teens, which is 62%, wish they were able to talk more openly about relationships with their parents. So parents of teenagers, I know this stuff can be awkward and uncomfortable, but our hope and our prayer is that this will kind of launch you into some great conversations, um, or at least conversations that end up great, even if they don't start there. So that's our hope. And if you don't have teenagers, uh, we hope that there'll be some really good stuff for you as well. Um, okay, so that's the long intro. Uh, one final thing by way of reminder, at the end of our time here, we've been doing uh, regularly on the first week of the month, our deacon team has been offering opportunities for people to receive prayer. And so when we're done here this morning, that will be available back here, kind of to my right, your left, behind the stage, um, if that's something you'd be interested in. But just a, a heads up about that. All right, so let's talk about sex. Um, so sex is kind of everywhere. Like, it, it's, it's so ubiquitous in our culture and our lives that we take for granted how much of our lives have been influenced by sex. I mean, just think about growing up. I mean, number one, you're here because someone had sex, right? Like, that's how you got here. And then all through life, you're kind of navigating your own body and learning how your body develops. And as you get older, one of the key markers of our development, what many cultures kind of see as the, the move into adulthood, what we see as the move into being a teenager, is puberty, right? Where your sexual organs develop and you become capable of sexual reproduction. And it's this incredibly, in some cases it can be a traumatic time, like it's kind of, it's, it's really disorienting as your body changes and you get used to this kind of new reality. Things that you feel now that you didn't feel before. Things that are going on that you kind of like, well, that's weird, what's that? This, it's, a, it's a key marker in our human development. It's something that shapes a lot of who we are and how we think about the world. It's, and in those times, we start having these conversations about things like uh, responsibility around sex and, and what choices we're making. Those conversations are happening in school. They're happening, hopefully, at home. 
and we're trying to navigate all of this just, just by being human. It's just, it's in us. Part of what it means. But it's not just kind of in our personal development, but our culture saturated it with it, right? It's, it's everywhere. I mean, we're, you're going to watch the Super Bowl, at least many of us are, and, uh, you know, some of us are only going to watch it for the commercials. And many of these commercials have both overt and kind of subtle messages about sex. Uh, one of the, the ad agencies who kind of uses that to their advantage most successfully is GoDaddy. I don't know if you remember this particular commercial from, I forget what year it was, but, it, you know, sex is this, it's a marketing gimmick, right? It's a way that we draw people in and cause them to, to kind of pay attention because we know that if we talk about sex, people will listen. They'll lean in. They'll, they'll look. And so we use it. It's, it's everywhere. But not just in ads, of course. It's in our, our movies and our, our books that we read. It's in TV. It's, it's in the music we listen to. And it's not just a singular message. There's a lot of different messages. In fact, our culture can be pretty confused about what it thinks about sex. I mean, take, for example, the Grammys. I don't know if you saw the Grammys. Um, one of the central themes of the Grammys was the Me Too movement, right? And so many of the, the people who were presenting awards, who were talking from the front, were talking about the need for us to bring awareness to and to stop the, the harassment and abuse that women have been experiencing forever. Right, And so that was front and center, public, and it should have been. But at the same time, there were other things happening at the Grammys, like the performances themselves. I, I don't know if, if you saw them, if you, maybe you saw the, the performance of Despacito, and I apologize in advance because I know simply by mentioning that name of that song, now it's going to be stuck in your head for the next week and a half. Um, but it's a catchy song. But, the, you know, Despacito... Uh, was receiving an award. I forget which one they won. Um, but they, they performed it. Um, I'm going to get his name wrong, so I need to look here. Lu- Luis Fossi and Daddy Yankee performed it on the Grammys. And what was fascinating about the performance, as you can kind of see from the picture here, is the men who were singing, Fossi and Daddy Yankee, they, you know, fully clothed, all their, their backup dancers, the men were all fully clothed. The women, not so much. They were actually... The, where they were clothed, they were clothed in such a way as to kind of make you imagine that they weren't. And they were, in many cases throughout the night, throughout the dance, the receptors of the, the overt sexual kind of acts of the male dancers toward them. And so even as you're watching the Grammys, you're like, Grammys, what do you want me to think? Like, what is the message here? Is it that we need to stop treating women as objects and using them for our own sexual gratification? Or is it that we should, and that's actually what sells music and makes me happy? Like, what's, what's the message I'm supposed to walk away with? It's confusing. And it's not all the Grammys' fault, right? Like, they just give us what we want. And so the more we watch, the more they give. And so, yes... It is, but no, it's not. We're all kind of confused about this. And unfortunately, the church, churches, we haven't been a whole lot better. We've been kind of confused ourselves. From 
the kind of subtle, like we just don't talk about it very much because we're not quite sure what to say, or the we don't really know how to deal with any nuances or differences in terms of people's experiences. So kind of like the clip from Don John where it's just the same answer every time. Doesn't matter the question, the answer is the same. Or to the extreme of we've been perpetrators of abuse. The church has been kind of confused on this as well. So when we jump into this this week, we just kind of want to step back and say, so what does scripture seem to point towards? If we really are going to be people who follow in the way of Jesus, how does Jesus himself and all of scripture, what, what help What direction does scripture give us in terms of navigating these really confusing and complicated waters? So we're going to begin at the beginning. Uh, We do this a lot, and, and it's really intentional, because when we talk about Jesus, we can't talk about Jesus and his worldview without talking about the beginning, because Jesus's worldview is deeply shaped by the worldview of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And so we're going to begin there. And particularly in the first creation story, we're going to look at Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, chapter 1. And we're going to begin on, in verse 26. And, and in this chapter, it's, it's essentially a poem that Genesis opens with about the creation of all things, where God is creating everything. He begins with nothing, with chaos, and he brings order to it. He brings light into darkness, and he begins to, to just create. It's this beautiful poem where God is creating all things, and he ends with human beings. And so we read this in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. It's right at the beginning. Uh, if not, we're going to have it up here on the screen so you can read along. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the mammals that scurry along the ground. And then we skip ahead to verse 31. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. All right, so I want to look at, suggest, I want to suggest to you three different things that we learn um, about sex as we look at Scripture. And, And the first couple come from this first passage in Genesis. The first thing we learn is that our identity matters. Our identity matters. So what we learn in this passage from the very beginning is that you are someone who is stamped with the divine image that you bear the image of the creator. That who you are is rooted in who God is. That's important. But it doesn't just stop there. As we go through scriptures, we come to another creation story, actually in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, John's biography of Jesus, chapter 1. In a, lot of the bi- in, in a couple of the biographies of Jesus, there's four. In a couple of them, they start out with stories about Jesus' birth. 
in John, he actually takes it back before Jesus' birth, and he talks about creation and how Jesus was actually participating with God in the creation of all things. And so in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So we're all stamped with the divine image. But then in Jesus, it's taken even one step further in terms of intimacy where we are welcomed into God's family. We are made God's children. And so primarily our identity is as people who are a part of God's family, who are loved, who reflect God's image. That's who we are. Now that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with sex, except it has everything to do with sex. Because as author and speaker Rob Bell says, what we do comes out of who we believe we are. What we do comes out of who we believe we are. And it's really true. And of course, not just in sex, but in everything. Who you think you are shapes how you interact with people around you. The choices that you make all, in every aspect of life. But particularly when it comes to sex. If you think you're someone who lacks love, who doesn't belong, then sex becomes something that you're using to get something that you desperately need from other people. It becomes a tool to kind of wring intimacy and belonging from someone else in a way that they are incapable of giving it to you. If we are uncertain of who we are, we can't we can't handle sex well. We wield it as a tool to get something for ourselves that it was never intended to give us. As Waylon Jennings so aptly described in his music, we, we look for love in all the wrong places. We begin looking for love and belonging where it, it can't be found at least not in any permanent way. Our identity matters because who you believe you are determines what you do. So the second thing we learn in this, so the first thing is about identity. The second thing we learn from this passage is that sex is actually good. Now, for some of you, maybe that's a no-brainer. You're like, thanks, didn't need that, I'm good. But for others of us, our experience with sex has led us to believe that it's not really good. And maybe, maybe it's not even our experience. Maybe it's the way that we were kind of taught growing up. Some of us, because of the environments we were in and because the, the people who were leading us, whether they were church environments or some other setting, maybe just our home, those who were leading us and thinking about these things, they wanted to protect us and Maybe they were afraid that if 
they didn't create big barriers between us and sex that it would be a slippery slope that would lead us to our own destruction and damnation. And so anytime sex was discussed, it was with heavy doses of shame and guilt and especially fear. And so our, our sense, even whether we think about it consciously or not, when we engage with the topic, it's just loaded with all of this sense of ugh. Like it's either kind of this evil thing out there that can't be touched, or it's, it's just dirty, not, not appropriate to be dealt with in settings like this among, you know, kind of proper people. And so it's important for us to realize that this is not the picture of sex that we get in Scripture. Not at all. When we come to Genesis chapter 1 and it it talks about sex, sex is simply part of God's good creation. People's ability to engage in sexual activity together is, it was there from the beginning. It's not something someone slipped in later because they thought it was a cool invention. And then we just kind of figured it out. It's part of what God intended. It's a gift. Now, it's a gift that can be used in ways that are destructive to ourselves and others. Like any gift, right? Like, you know, if you get a lot of money given to you, there are ways that you can use that that are beautiful and life-giving. And there are ways that you can use that that could be ultimately destructive for you and for other people. The question is, how are you going to use it? Are you going to use it responsibly? And a lot of that is rooted in, who do you think you are? And why are you here? Your identity. So, your identity is critical. Sex is a gift. And then I think the final thing that I think not only just this passage, but scripture as a whole lays out for us and this is, kind of, this is the one I, I want to kind of land on as we kind of move towards the end. And we're going to spend some time in Q&A. So as we go through this, and you have some, if you have any questions or thoughts, we're going to spend some time interacting together. Sex, as Scripture presents it, is an illustration of God's love for us. Sex points almost as a metaphor to something beyond itself, to something transcendent, to something other that we all long for. It points us to God and to God's love for us in Christ. Now, I'm going to break that down a little bit because that that's, might sound like a stretch. Um, so first, we see this when we see God creating humans to be people who create so one of the, the primary responsibilities of humans after God creates them is to go be fruitful and multiply, right? Which is a very nice way of saying have sex and have babies, right? So, so sex is a critical piece in people being able to reflect God's image as a creator. In order for them to be able to, to be like God in that way, sex is a gift through which they demonstrate God's creative abilities, God's creative nature. 
Now, obviously, particularly for us living on this side of, of birth control, sex does not always or necessarily lead to children. And so, not arguing that, but just biologically, this is how that works. That aspect of sex reflects God's nature as a creator. So in sex, we actually see something about who God is and what God does. But secondly, in sex, we also see an illustration of God's nature as three who become one. Again, we've talked about this, God as Father, Son, and Spirit existing in loving relationship together, that that God is three but one. And in this image of two becoming one flesh, we get this imperfect image that points us to the reality of God's nature, even beyond the act of sex itself. That there's something about these two coming together that says something about who God is and even just what reality is like as people who were created by this God. Jesus speaks about this in Mark's gospel when he's talking about about marriage. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus says, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And so Jesus references back to this this idea of marriage, but even more than that, this this idea of two becoming one, this not-so-subtle reference to the act of sex that draws people together as an illustration of God's love, God's commitment to us. It's an illustration that points us beyond the act of sex itself to something that's true about God. And we can get uncomfortable with that because we can be we can be kind of prudish around sex, right? Like anytime we talk about it, it's either it has to be overtly a joke or we just can't talk about it at all, but there's very little room in the middle where we can have honest adult conversations about sex in a way that don't make us all uncomfortable. But this this drive for for sex, for that level of intimacy and connection, and the experience of it with another person are all pointing us towards something even greater and beyond that we long for that can't be experienced in the act of sex itself. Intimacy with one, even greater than that physical connection. Uh, One final passage from the New Testament illustrates this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he writes, as the scripture says, this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 33, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, this idea that sex points us beyond itself to the very nature of the God who created us. That in Jesus' love for us, like it, it points us to the love of Christ for us. And that, that direction, that, that movement, actually tells us something about 
how sex is to even be engaged. Jesus, when he reveals his love to us, does so in a way that isn't coercive, that isn't about a power play. It's not about manipulation. It's about laying down his life to serve us. It's Jesus giving himself for us so that we can find life with him. And sex is intended from the perspective of the New Testament to reflect that self-giving love it's in its very essence. That the way that sex works best is when we engage it not as how do I get something from someone else that I really want, but how do I serve and love another person really well? What does it look like? Even in this what seems to be basest, right, the, the kind of most animalistic of acts. How do I engage in this in a way that actually serves the person that I'm engaged with? This, this love of Christ gives us a shape for even how our sex lives ought to look. You can see this uh, if you look at church history at all. One of the things that's really interesting, if you read the Bible... Many of us assume that the Bible kind of speaks very, well, again, as we said earlier, if you just kind of pay attention to church history, we assume that the Bible just doesn't, either doesn't talk about sex or the only thing it says about sex is that you just don't do it. But that's actually, it's not the case at all. In fact, if you read, there's this little book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs in some, some translations, and it's actually all about sex. I kid you not. It's, you, you can look it up. Again, it's in the Old Testament. They have table of contents. Look there, find it. Do some light reading. It's, at face value, it's actually a little uncomfortable to read because it's very explicitly about sex. But what's fascinating is that for, for thousands of years, the church has understood the Song of Solomon to be an allegory that actually points us to the love that Christ has for us. In recent time, over the past, eh, let's say, 100 years or so, we've moved away from that a little bit as a church. But for thousands of years before that, that was just the understood kind of meaning. This is pointing us to the love that Christ has for us. I think at least in part the last 100 years we've, we've struggled with that because it makes us so uncomfortable to think about that. But this is the way the Bible sees sex. Obviously, there are lots of ways that we experience it as good, or can experience it as good, but it points us to a good that's beyond that. It points us to the love of Christ. And as we kind of bring this to a close, I do think as we look at the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, but particularly the New Testament, we also have to look at the reality that for the New Testament, the vision that Jesus and the New Testament authors have for sex lands it, this experience of self-giving love, squarely in the context of marriage. That it's in the context of marriage that these people are invited to experience the self-giving love of Christ in this deeply intimate way with one another. As uh, Duke Professor Lauren Winner writes, Sex is meant to unite two people, and it is meant to recall and even reenact the promise that God makes to us 
that we make to one another in the marriage vow. That is, we promise one another fidelity, and God's Spirit promises a presence that will uphold us in our radical and crazy pledge of lifelong faithfulness. For the scriptures, sex is to be experienced as good in the context of this committed relationship. These people who are committed to one another as they move forward in life together. Even the neurology behind sex kind of points to this. One of the the chemicals released from the brain during sex is oxytocin, which is associated with building trust and connection. It's, It's known as the the bonding hormone, or I'm sorry, the cuddling hormone, because of the effect it has on the couple after sex. Neurologically, biologically, as we engage in this activity, it draws us closer to the person we're having sex with. It's part of how it's set up. And it's in the context of marriage that sex actually serves as a gift to build intimacy and move us toward this picture of Christ's love for us. And I know that's challenging because many of us, better than half of us, have had really difficult experiences with marriage. And even the over half of us who haven't gone through divorce or separation, there's another chunk of us who even though we're still married, marriage is not the flowery romantic picture that we often pretend that it is in settings like this. And so this isn't to over-romanticize marriage and say that, oh, it's this amazing, wonderful thing, and if you just kind of do it, it'll be great, right? Like, it's, it's not. It's, it can be hard. I mean, some of you have really easy marriages, and it hasn't been really hard, and that you're, you're really odd. But that's great. So <laughs> that's great. But for many of us, it's a lot of hard work slugging out what it looks like to do life together. And I think it's precisely because of that that marriage has kind of traditionally been a sacrament in the church. That word sacrament is kind of a weird one. We don't use that a lot around here. Um, but it comes from the, the Greek translation, I'm sorry, the Latin translation of a Greek word, the Greek word mysterion, that is translated mystery. For its life, the church has seen marriage as a mystery. And many of us would shake our heads vigorously and go, here, here doesn't make a bit of sense. But church is a mystery in that it points us to this God who loves us unto death so that we can find life. And in the process of two broken people trying to figure out life together, sex in that context illustrates something about the nature of the God who gives himself for us. Even as we fight it, even as we push against it, kicking and screaming, a God who graciously loves us and serves us. This this is the, the biblical view of sex. Calling us to find our identity in our creator, receiving it as a good gift, and recognizing that as we live in it, as we engage in it in the context of a committed relationship, it points us to something beyond the mystery itself, beyond 
marriage, beyond the act of sex, to the self-giving love of Jesus. So as such, some things to think about. And then we're going to move into a time of Q&A. First thing, Jesus is our sex symbol as followers of Jesus. Um, I know, that's a really awkward way to say it, so I hope that helps you remember it. Um, And again, Jesus, while from everything we can tell, was someone who never engaged in sexual activity, but was fully human, shows us what love looks like at its ultimate every level of love, whether we're talking about sexual intimacy or friendship or everything in between. Love looks like Jesus giving himself for us. And so in everything that we do, including our sexual relationships, as followers of Jesus, we bring that same ethic to sex. What does it look like for me to lovingly serve my partner? Jesus shows us the way. He is our sex symbol. Secondly, I would encourage you not to write off marriage. Now, that's not to say that marriage is for everyone. Marriage isn't. In fact, what, you, what might surprise you, because typically, in pl- again, in places like this in churches, we tend to think that really what everyone needs is just to get married. And if you're, you know, whatever's going on in your life, if you're single, the answer is get married. Um, If you've ever gotten married for that reason, you know how that goes. Not so well. And so this is not to romanticize marriage again. And in fact, the Bible kind of points, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, Paul, it's one of Paul's letters, he would encourage his readers, you know, for a lot of you, marriage is not the best thing. I think it would actually be better for you to not be married. Like, I wasn't married, and like, Christ wasn't married. So for many of us, marriage is actually not helpful. And so this is not to say, hey, we should all get married. It's simply to say, try not to allow your cynicism about marriage to to get the best of you. I think there's still, if we're going to take Jesus and Scripture seriously, we still hold out hope that this mystery has something for us to point us to something beyond ourselves that in marriage there is actually an image that we can look at to see something of what God is like and what it means to live in a relationship with him in the world. That is true for singleness as well. Um, But there's a particular way in which marriage illustrates that for us. So if you're someone who has kind of written marriage off and you're just like, you know what, no way I'd ever consider that again. Um, You don't have to, but would love to have a conversation about that. It's completely good and healthy sometimes to choose not to be married. But I think in our culture it's easy to reject it out of hand as an outdated institution that has nothing to offer for us. And I think that's because we've misunderstood what it is. So that's second. And then final, this is all to be continued. So this morning is a lot about trying to figure out what does scripture actually point us to as an ideal for sex. There are a ton of caveats that we haven't even begun to touch about, but what, what happens when it doesn't go that way? Because it rarely goes that way. 
We're all broken people who make mistakes and hurt one another and have been hurt. And what do we do with all of that? And, and my hope is, well, we won't be able to answer all those questions. My hope is that we'll begin to dialogue about some of those in the coming weeks. As next week, we, you know, we kind of jump in the deep end on the other side, talking about abuse and harassment and, and assault. And then that final week, we talk a little bit about, so for all of us, wherever we are in our place of brokenness, what does it look like to move forward in relationship with God and each other? So I get that there's a lot of, yeah, but, and we can talk about that in Q&A, and my hope is we'll start to get at some of those in the next couple of weeks. All right, so speaking of which, we're going to interact a little bit here. So I would love to hear your thoughts. I know you have them because we talked about sex, or I talked about sex for the last 35 minutes or so. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts, questions, um, for us, and then we'll move into a final song. Oh, and one reminder, if you have teens and you want to have a conversation, I'm going to set these on the table on the way out by the back door so you can grab them. Cool. Well, Father, thank you for um, the chance to talk about this in this setting. And I pray that you would teach us. I pray that as we come to learn from you, uh, from the scriptures, from Jesus, that you would teach us what it looks like to be people who engage all of who we are, including our sexuality, in ways that reflect your image, your love, and help us experience full life as we were intended. Would you give us courage and strength for the journey and good conversation partners along the way? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.